Hello, and welcome to the Librarian is In, the New York Public Library podcast about books, culture, self-reflection, the state of social media, insect infestations, golden age Hollywood actors and musicals that only Frank knows, ominous tarot card readings, and what to read next. I'm Crystal. Wow, I'm flabbergasted. <laughs> I love how you were like, should I do the intro? And I was like, sure, like thinking she was just going to wing it. And Crystal was like, no, I prepped for this one. <laughs> you certainly did. The sum up of everything we talked about this year. You were, so you were listening. Aw, you actually sometimes, listened to me. Sometimes I listen, sometimes to. I don't. <laughs> I gotta work on that. <laughs> That's so funny because uh, you, in your intro, which was delightful, you mentioned, uh, you know, all the interests that I always talk about. And I actually have been sort of like going to my comfort reads, which is like Hollywood and stuff. And I just got a book I used to have as a kid called The Films of Lana Turner. <laughs> yes. Of course, you probably don't know who she is. And I haven't seen that book since I was like 13 or something. And mm -hmm. I just saw it again and it brought back it brought back memories of re of looking at that book, fantasizing and listening to the Bee Gees. Mm -hmm. That's how long ago it was. Do you know the Bee Gees at least? Yeah. You know, no, I was, I was yeah. originally going to say like when I wrote this out, I was, uh, I originally had the word obscure, obscure Hollywood actors and musicals that only, you know, but then I was like, honestly, they're only obscure to me. I think lots of people know who the Bee Gees are, who Lana Turner is. I think I just don't pay attention. Fair enough. That's actually a very giving point of yours. Cause it's true. <laughs> um, it was actually the Bee Gees follow-up al album to Saturday night fever. Their record after that was Spirits Having Flown. And I remember listening to the, their music and looking at this Films of Lana Turner book and just being like immersed in a world of glamour. And I was. And then I am again because I got hold of the book after, what, 30 years of not seeing it. And it, it so brought me back to being a tween. So interesting. So it's the nostalgia of it because it reminds yeah. you of your childhood that you love, not like the glamour itself, or is there something about the glamour that feels very cozy? Well, it was all about the the heightened feelings that the music brought and the book of old Hollywood and the potential and the fantasy of the future, you know, really sort of without language in some ways, just a feeling of, of fruition that of something's coming something fun exciting full of love laughter and boy did i learn <laughs> but uh you know it brought back that it wasn't nostalgia per se but sort of the feeling of being a young person hoping and dreaming for the future mm. so the soundtrack we all have a soundtrack in a way and not books that that abet that dream um and that was that was one of mine, so. Hmm. Hollywood, da, da 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 Hollywood. Anyway. Is that the soundtrack of your life, that song? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> um, your background is quite appropriate. It's clouds, you look like you're a goddess. It's pink, pink fluffy clouds to match my pink tie-dye shirt. <laughs> Aww. I mean, you can just see my room if you want, but it's a, it's a hot mm. mess right now. No, I like looking. It makes me feel actually more reverent towards you. Oh, good, good. 
<laughs> oh, good. I see your slow takeover and domination. You're like, you want me to do the intro that she aces it. Crystal knows exactly what she's doing. She's like, yes, first you, Frank, then world domination. Yeah, give it another few months. Our intro is going to be so long. It's going to be like a whole diary entry from me. <gasps> It'll be like the, what is that title? The amazing, I don't know. I was thinking of something, a very long title. But anyway, how are you otherwise, other than your superlative intro? Um, I'm good. Excited for our holiday break that's upcoming. So we get a very long weekend, which is nice. Oh, right. This will air after Thanksgiving, but. Oh, yeah, I forget. We're doing the this before. I was going to like do that TV thing where it'll be like, hey, how was your Thanksgiving? Oh, let's, we could do that. I had a lovely Thanksgiving. I ate tons of foods. It was all very delicious. I cooked it all myself because I'm an excellent cook. Really wonderful. <laughs> Never have to rely on frozen dinners. <laughs> Everything from scratch. I planted my own potatoes. I grew them. I made them into mashed potatoes. Fancy. I have a farm with a turkey. I slaughtered a turkey myself. Ooh, yes, no. all of that. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. How was your Thanksgiving? I would never slaughter um, a turkey. <laughs> yeah. The same without the slaughter, but um, mm -hmm. no. I don't know. I'm doing, I love being in New York these days, these past couple of years by myself in a way um, when everyone else is out of town for mm -hmm. holidays. It's just, just a wonderful feel. I love the feeling of walking around the streets or being even in the apartment when everyone's away. It's mm -hmm. delicious. It's a delicious feeling. So I Thanksgiving is going to be chillaxed. Mm -hmm. Me, myself, and I, and Lana <laughs> Turner, and the Bee Gees. <laughs> that sounds... And a martini, good. baby. Yeah. <laughs> um, you it's know, the, to speak to that, like, feeling of everyone being away, the one thing I really love about New York City as a Texan who only experienced very like gross kind of icy snow is the first day that the snow falls in New York and it just blankets everything and it looks so pristine and lovely. All the trash is covered up and that gets ruined pretty immediately. Like the next day it's all slush and gross, but yeah. that first snowfall is like the best feeling. And I will say I, the past couple of years I think it has not fallen before Christmas which is incredibly sad I, even though I'm not like a super like um Christmas Christmassy type person um but I feel like the last couple of years the snow has just not been the same and that's been very sad because that was the one thing I really loved about New York City yeah it hasn't been we used to have some doozy snowstorms back when I was a kid back when I was a kid I guess it well, seemed like we did Mm -hmm. I've been but here we since. We still get snow. We we still we get. do, but I've been here since I think twenty thirteen ish, and since then, we would always have a white Christmas. In the last two to three years, I don't think we did, and I was disappointed by that. Oh uh, well, that's always unpredictable. Yeah, the actual day of, but winters, whether it's a good winter, bad winter, like lots of snow, yeah. not a lot. I don't know. We'll see what this one brings. We'll see. We'll see. Fingers crossed that it comes before Christmas. Um, and oh. It's a nice feeling. Again, I don't even celebrate Christmas that much, but just the just the idea of it. Although I will watch while you were sleeping. My favorite movie. With Sandra Bullock. And uh, what's his name? Bill Pol Pullman. 
Bill yes. Pullman? Oh. Mm-hmm. Have you seen one. it recently? Is that a Christmas movie? Yeah, this is a Christmas movie. It has a yeah. Christmas thing in it. Yeah, because it happens during Christmas and Sandra Bullock is, um, I think she's just like alone. She doesn't have like any parents. Um, and so she kind of like finds this other family and it's, it has some very lovely themes in it. And I recommend it to everyone. Well, now that we're on the sub, um, I was thinking, what would my Christmas movie be? Die Hard. This pro- You're such a Die Hard person. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Lana Turner in Die Hard. <laughs> well, uh, the first that comes to mind, I'm sure there's more than one, but is Meet Me in St. Louis. Mm, okay. With Judy Garland, mm. Margaret O'Brien. That's where clang, clang, clang went the trolley. Ding, ding, ding went the bell. Stop, stop, stop went my heartstrings. From the moment I saw him, I fell. Um, Margaret O'Brien, Judy Garland. It's actually all the holidays. There's a Halloween scene. Uh, it's charming, oh, and that's okay. "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas." That's where that song came from. Yeah, you know, I want to do a 31 Days of Christmas movies. I don't know if I can actually do it, just because it's going to be a lot of movie watching. Because my roommate, she does a 31 Days of Halloween, where she watches watches a scary wow. movie every night and then complains about having nightmares, which is <laughs> hilarious to me. Um, but maybe I'll add this one to my list if I if I do end up doing it. You should. You should. It's just. Charming and lovely. I want to watch good ones. I don't want to watch a bunch of Hallmark ones because I know there's tons of Hallmark Christmas Seems movies. Seems to be. I what else is a good Christmas time movie? Like seasonal, that makes you feel cozy. Well, <laughs> the second one I thought was Black Christmas. <laughs> I've heard of that. One. Which is the original, it was remade a couple of years ago, but like a 70s horror movie. Slash. Oh. So horrible. It was. One of those movies I saw when I was just a touch too young that just freaked me out. Mm. 1974, maybe? Mm-hmm. It was sort of a precursor to the slasher genre. Mm-hmm. Um, Olivia Hussey, who I've talked about in the podcast before, was in it, is in it. And um, she was in Romeo and Juliet. Margot Kidder. Oh, so freaked. And it doesn't really resolve itself. It just ends horribly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's so moody. It's very seventies. Okay. Um, so that's the, that's the flip side of Judy Garland, Black Christmas or Stranger. <laughs> oh, you know another one that's really good is The Family Stone. Have you seen that one? With Diane Keaton, Sarah Jessica, Sarah Jessica Parker. Mm-hmm. I really I love that I one. I don't well. think I have. Actually, Sarah Jessica Parker. Speaking of in the Sex and the City movie, she. Uh, watches Meet Me in St. Louis, Carrie, the, her character. Oh, her character. Mm-hmm. Every year. It's a classic. We used to sh- I used to show it in the library every year. Oh, are time. you going to do it again? I haven't been doing movies because I'm still away, eager, eager, <laughs> eagerly awaiting the upgrade in audiovisual that I've been working on for, seems like, years now. <laughs> but the supply chain, don't you know? Yeah. Uh, but maybe, I don't know. Do it. Do While You Were Sleeping, the best one, my favorite. Sandra Bullock. I remember when that came out. Anyway, we're here to talk about books. Enough with culture. I know. I think we're culture. doing too much Christmas talking since Thanksgiving right. started. I think we're not supposed to talk about it until after Thanksgiving, right? No, after Black no, Friday. Just, 
we just natter about. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I get panicked and I forget what I'm going to talk about, and I always do. Because I, I feel know. a responsibility, but yet I don't act like I have a responsibility. I was saying, I feel like a responsibility of presenting a coherent presentation of a book, which I never do. And I never really prepare that way because I resist it. I think you're very coherent. I feel like you're very good at being kind of like methodical and how you talk about your books and the self-reflection that happens. I'm going to tell you right now, my presentation is going to be a hot mess. Why? Because I've like been trying to get through so many books because of the end of the year. And I feel like I'm conflating everything all together. But, you know. We'll work it out. You know, Lord knows, this could be a short podcast. I think the listeners might be like, yeah, thanks. <laughs> we don't have to go on and on, even though I just, once I get going, I start revving up, and then I don't want to stop. So yeah. feel free to stop. You've, you've warmed up the vocal cords, and you're like, yes, let's go. But uh, are you reading from your best, one of the many hundreds of communities oh, you're on? I have so, huh? What'd you say? <laughs> are you reading? Uh, are you reading? I know I keep putting my fingers in my mouth. Are you reading? Because um, I know you're on a lot of committees for mm-hmm. books. Book yeah. Committees. So are you reading? Are you going to talk about one of? Let's just yeah. tell me. Okay. Think? I have two <laughs> books. I guess I'm going to just talk briefly about them. One that I finished a bit ago that I really enjoy. And they're two very different. So the first book I want to talk briefly about is called All Your, All, sorry, I won't, I'm even messing this up. All Our Families, Disability Lineage and the Future of Kinship by Jennifer Natalia Fink, which is the a- The Future non- of Kinship? The Future of Kinship, yes. Oh. By Jennifer Natalia Fink. And so this book uh, talks about disability lineage and essentially how um, it's been broken in a lot of ways because of the way our society that kind of frames disability and kind of advocates for a, a relineation of disability, right? And she draws from a lot of personal example. So this book, I think, pulls a lot from critical race theory, queer theory, but uses that framework to talk about disability, right? And I would say it is on the more academic side in some ways, but there is a lot of anecdotal stuff because um, she talks about her own family in terms of uh, people in the, like, grandparents further past and also her immediate family, um, because she has a child who I believe is on the autism spectrum or is autistic. And so pulls from those experiences. And one of the things that she talks about is um, I believe her, I'm going to get this wrong. I'm not sure if it was like a great cousin or which uh, generation it was, but a cousin that she calls cousin XY that was sort of cut out of the family because they had a disability rate. And she kind of argues this point that, um, you know, people with disabilities kind of deserve to have this sort of intergenerational network of supports, but the way disability is treated, it's often very kind of isolating and you're kind of pushed out of the family, but what are the possibilities if uh, those generations are still like intact, that lineage is still there. So not only does she have a child with a disability, then they have like grandparents, cousins, other people in the family. And so that support network and that care network would still be there and how that could like really change what disability means for a lot of people. Um, So I feel like this does a really great job of like laying out um, all of that 
Um, and also, which I thought was kind of interesting, at the very end of it, there is a appendix. So it's not quite part of the book. The book itself is, again, like kind of academic with, with a but in an accessible way. Um, and in the appendix, it kind of gives very um, straightforward things that you can do. So however you define family, whoever you are, were, and whoever might be your kin, I hope you will take the opportunity to do the sometimes profound, occasional tedious, and ultimately world-making work of claiming your disability lineage. And then uh, a lot of these tips are um, provided here, like including one of the first ones is to really talk about your family's experiences of disability, um, to expand your concept of disability, uh, consult skeptically to internet, seek out public records, um, look for absences. And then uh, the second appendix is recipes for a revolution, which it reimagines care and community. And then it kind of gives concrete suggestions for how to transform the culture of care. So one is like transform parent support groups into mutual aid groups, involve and center support groups on parents who themselves identify as disabled, reject far from the treeism, highlight similarities on their differences. So it goes on, but I, I really appreciate that it does the academic work, right? It talks about personal experience and then it gives very set concrete things that people who read this book can also engage with, right? So I really like that one. That was my first book. The second well, what book- What is it called again? Um, all are, dis oh, sorry. All our families, disability, lineage, and the future of kinship. So when you say when they say lineage, it means cr create, find, and create your own family of I, disabled I, uh, lineage or disabled history. Yes and no. I think there are elements where she does talk about like the chosen family. So she provided one example of um, being a part of this parent support group, um, parents of I think autistic children, but then she was kind of isolated from that because I think her child is, um, was it like non-speaking or something? So it was kind of a different kind of disability and she was very isolated because they stopped inviting her to things because their children were like speaking and, and et cetera, right? And so she had to find her like new kind of group that was dealing with similar circumstances and um, they provide a lot of like mutual aid and law support and that was very meaningful to her. I think the core of the message is in actual like families in genetic families this um, way of um, excising people with disabilities is something that happens very frequently. Like they're sent to homes or they're, it's like they're not talked about, right? It's like a secretive thing, but being really open about it allows this kind of lineage to form, right? And then that creates this kind of support network and, and also like, I think really like normalizes it too. Like disability is not something that should be like hidden away and um, not talked about, right? So I think it kind of goes into that. And there's another chapter in here too, which I'm not going to talk about because I feel like I don't have the expertise to talk about it. But she also talks about this in um, context of, I think it was like uh, the Nazism and like the sorting and eugenics and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and how uh, that also really affected people with disabilities too. They were also like really killed, you know, for having disabilities. Um, and so there's a chapter about that and, and the genocide and stuff that it was involved with um, ableism. So I thought this was really good. It's not a tough book to read. I think it is 
This book, the other book that I really like is the one edited by Alice Wong called Disability Visibility, which has a lot of, I think I talked about this maybe, but it has a lot of chapters from people with disabilities. And um, I think they, these two books work really well together and I would recommend. Um, mm. And then I'm just gonna briefly, because okay. I feel like I've gathered on for a bit. Um, what we fed to the Manticore stories by Talia Lakshmi Kaluri. It's a series of stories um, told from the point of view of different animals. And some of the animals can talk. There's also mythical creatures like the Manticore, which I have to look up. And the Manticore is this creature that has a human face, I think a lion's body, and then like wings as well, kind of like a dragon or an eagle. Huh? It's mythical, I assume. It is, it is mythical, yes. I mean, uh, initially, I think I was confusing the manticore with that. Oh, I think I was confusing it with a manatee. That's what I was. Like, I was getting very um, confused. <laughs> which, is a, which is a sea cow. Yes, and I was like, this doesn't make any sense. And I had to look it up. I was like, oh, oh you're an idiot. It's a manticore. The manticore. But um, I thought this book does like a really great job of talking about different things that are happening in our world but through the viewpoints of these animals some mythical some not um the first story is about a donkey in a zoo and it's from the pov of the donkey the donkey can talk and it's in the zoo in gaza and then you know what's happening there are these bombings and the donkey is slowly seeing like his friends and different animals um, die because of the bombings that are happening. And it was a book that I was reading on the train and I just like started sobbing because I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. It was it was a, a tough read for me. Um, and I think there is something that maybe is, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's sick or not, but like, I feel like it's so easy to relate to animals in a way. And, and I think this book, does a great job of like writing it from those POVs. So I think it allows people to bring a different perspective to all of these world problems. Cause I think sadly we're very jaded about things that happen to people because we are constantly hearing about it. Um, and when it happens to animals, I think it ev evokes a different reaction even though that's the reaction we should have for people as well. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. What's an example of another one from another animal POV? Well, the manticore one is from the POV of a tiger and this manticore is in this village and the manticore is just like always hungry and it's just like constantly eating, constantly eating. It's eating the other animals and then the tiger has something to eat. It's eating the people, it's eating the village and eventually it basically eats the whole world. And I thought that was kind of um, interesting for me to relate to things like uh, consumerism or, or like corporations and how it's like the earth just gets churned away because we want to constantly consume things and how we're maybe destroying so much and leaving nothing for anybody else um so that's how i relate that story so some of them are like fables and others are more like historical or like true history. yeah there is definitely a range of yeah you know, there's another I'm one that, like, kind of, a, of an animal pop with animal consciousness i guess yeah there, i mean human consciousness personification Yes, because like the donkey is very human-like, and it also seems like the donkey can like talk to the zookeeper, which I thought was interesting. There was another one called like "May God Forever Bless the Rhino Keepers," and that's through the eyes of a hound. 
and um, the hound is owned by a rhino keeper and there is like a mother rhino and a baby rhino and then they deal with poachers and then sort of the effect on the hound to witness that because those are his friends and then, like the mother gets killed and um, the kind of connection to from the hound to his like owner but also to this orphan baby i was like yeah i was definitely sobbing on the train through most of these wow. stories but anyways i really enjoyed it so far i still have another few stories to get through but i highly recommend it that was what we fed to the manticore um that's the name of the pot this podcast is sobbing on the train <laughs> well that's like every day for me sometimes though <laughs> oh, another person not wearing a mask. Let me cry now. <laughs> uh, I will say the mask is very good for soaking up my tears when I am reading very like emotionally affecting books on the train. I just like pull it up a little higher and I'm just like, okay, this will hide my tears. Well, when I feel like I'm suffering from hag face, which is basically every day, the mask actually. Yeah. Which I don't really wear anymore, but. The mask, it's giving me a rash. I, you know, but yeah, I feel like I just have to do it. Um, I mean, people are drop dropping like flies in terms of being sick. Yeah, and it's also, because I definitely got boosted for the um, yeah. COVID and the flu, and then there's also this, is it the RSV? I'm like, there's Who two knows what people have, but like half the staff is out this week. I was yeah. like, oh, interesting. <laughs> Thanksgiving week. For me, I'm just like, Being it's very managerial and suspected now, of course. And I think they're really sick. I think it's just easier for me to just constantly wear my mask whenever possible than to figure out how to protect myself from all of these no, different I mean, viruses. There's too many. I don't know. There's so, so few rules, though, because, you know, some of the people who are out sick wear their masks all the time. Mm -hmm. Oh, I that's never, true. I never do anymore. And I mean, God help me, but you know, so far, not good. Oh, yeah. Maybe you keep people at an appropriate distance. You only talk to them. Yeah, I'm a like spreader. I don't know. Or I don't know. People's immune systems are Maybe. very different. But um, it's all a crazy, nutty kind of game. Let's just face it. But um, we'll get through it. We shall survive. So thank you, dear. Goodbye. Okay. <laughs> Goodbye. No, what's your book? The Films of nice Lana Turner. All right. Oh, did I read a book? Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> I read, a, I went to an author, maybe like the Lana Turner thing. I'm, I went towards comfort or familiarity or favorites. Um, I read, so do you remember if I met, see, I, see, you're such a good listener there. Do you remember a, a name of an author I've always said that is one of my favorites? <laughs> No. I'm testing your love for me, basically. Wait, wait, let me think about this. If you remember, that means you love me. If you don't, that means you don't. Sorry for the alarms in the back, but the alarm, my alarm is going off because Crystal doesn't remember. <laughs> Was it Ian? Oh, Ian McEwen. He's one of them. Oh, you're so sweet. If, I wish everyone could see your face because you're seriously <laughs> contemplating trying to remember. Who was that author you talked about last time where you read all of their books and didn't you say they were getting progressively like not as good possibly? Oh. That 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 I didn't say, but I think you you do remember the author Anita Brooke. Oh, maybe it was a no, maybe it was a um a review I was reading. <laughs> Ian, was it Ian something too? Ian McEwen, I just said it. No, no, not that Ian. There was another. Oh, one. Ian Reed. Oh, yes. oh, you're right. Ian Reed, who uh, right, who uh, wrote. I'm thinking of ending things, and then everybody loved the first book. Progressively, yeah. 
I didn't know I was so blatant about my criticism. I mean, everything went into the first one, um, but I still sort of love him. But it's tough. It's like that. It's isn't that like a sophomore slump kind of thing. People well, it's his third it. fiction book. Oh. Um, junior, junior slump. But it would. Well, I just said it. But the book, the author Anita Bruckner. Oh. Um, she is someone I've read for 30 years or whatever. Uh, she's dead now, but she British author. And I've talked about her before. I've read books by her and discussed them on the podcast, but I might not have mentioned them that much to you there. There's your out, but uh, it's comfort. Isn't the word. I guess I just resist that word. Cause it sounds lazy, which is silly. There is a comforting element to it, but it's, she's challenging. She, it's not easy read. Cause I don't tend to, read easy books or want to, but I should. Um, in so Anita Bruckner, the book I read is Anita Bruckner's fraud. I mean, mm-hmm. the reason why I thought you might've been referring to her is because it said she used to write a book a year. Uh, and you know, this sounds like a criticism, which I don't mean it f- with regard to her. It's really just like the same book mm-hmm. every year in that there are different plots of course, but it's she her style is so controlled and 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 her own that she mines the same social areas in what she discusses um and some of the themes are similar you know they're usually of a certain class mm-hmm. uh kind of solitary individual ruminating over life basically mm-hmm. and then you, there's usually some sort of schism or some sort of like interruption to that life, like a, a death in the family or a, a sort of prodigal personage comes into their life that disrupts their routine, causing them to contemplate their choices and, and the social structures in which they live. Which when you were talking about the, the disabled book about society and things like that, I, I definitely was ruminating about society in this book, Fraud, <laughs> because I mean, there's a thing I have lately where whenever I see the, because I say it too, whenever I see or say the word society, I, I re- remind myself to include myself in it. Mm-hmm. Because when I, we, and I think we've talked about this too, is that when we say society, I don't ever want to think, oh, it's them. They are imposing something. I mean, it might be a majority, but that we are all a part of it. Yeah. I feel like it's important not to forget that because- that means you, you have some sort of say or control in it. It's not just this fight against. It's that we are a part of it too. And I'll, I guess really what it is is a, an exhortation to self-reflect and to say, how am I a part of this problem? Or how am I a part of this solution? Because we are a society. It's, mm-hmm. It seems like just a lazy, convenient way to say like, oh, society says that we have to be X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, <laughs> society is people you and me, everyone we know. Um, so I think about that. So because the Anita Bruckner writes about social issues, I mean, social, like, uh, like a personal emotional issues of how one gets through what we call society. Mm-hmm. And those, those minute by minute contemplations and navigations of, of becoming uh, a person, like wh- about getting what you want, um, coming to fruition, like I said before. So, but she doesn't, it isn't an us versus them way of writing. She, 
how do I put this? Um, her writing is so, I always want to say elegant, but it, it may be that, but it's not that. She almost, it's very controlled, very um, uh, precise. It seems like she's absolute control over her language. Like she mm-hmm. has every available word to her disposal to write what she wants to say. There is a remove or a lack of sentiment or a cooling of the emotions, which is an interesting Con, um, contrast to she's writing about extraordinarily emotional situations and animal almost like writing about humans as, as biological organisms and animals getting through the world but in this highly sophisticated language so the tension between the two is great to me and some people who read her could think oh it's like you know ladies drinking tea kind of thing mm-hmm. but it's not she's writing about core stuff like mm-hmm. sex love be, you know <laughs> finding your way in the world be attaining an identity um but in this sort of slightly it's almost like someone who thought about these horrible painful experiences in their life has enough distance that is able to precisely write about them without being emotionally sucked in and maybe, and usually I like being emotionally sucked in and being emotionally destroyed by a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe like your newfound takeover of the podcast. I like someone who can be a little disciplined, more disciplined than me. And I feel comforted by that mm-hmm. uh, or safer. And I feel like I can listen to Anita Bruckner because I trust her. I, I trust her her control Mm -hmm. over her universe. So I, I find that comforting, even though the issues she talks about aren't particularly comforting. Mm -hmm. Um, So this book is like, it's an interesting theme in that it starts with a woman, one of her classic women, like, you know, single, middle-aged, upper-class woman, Anna Durant goes missing. And, everybody's sort of wondering where she could have gone because she was like the classic good girl who nursed her mother um, to till the mother's demise, the mother's death. And, you know, everyone around her, like society says, well, she'll never get married. She's like already 50 and she gave her life to her mother, how sweet she is, but how strange that she'll never really have a real life of her own. And then she goes missing and everyone wonders, like she must be, something bad must have happened because she certainly wouldn't have taken off on her own or would she? (laughs) And that's what you, that's the basic motion of the plot, but there's so much, so much in there because there's a couple of women's minds that were in, in this book, including Anna's and her mother's and uh, and a neighbor called Mrs. Marsh. And Mrs. Marsh especially is sort of like the sort of classic no nonsense, nonsense, gruff woman who raised two kids, got married, did what she was supposed to do. Happy with it. Widowed. You know, I did the thing. You get married, you do your job, you you hit the road, you die. Um, Mm -hmm. But then of course, within that societal structure, she contemplates things far and wide that you wouldn't expect so-called from someone like that. And that's what I love about Anita Bruckner's books is that you have a sort of, Classics, you know, person who fits right into into society and what society expects. Like I just said, getting married, have the kids, mm-hmm. raise them, s- stick to the stick to the norms, 
but of course her inside she's thinking all sorts of things and that's what i mean by the you know we're biological animals that have needs and hungers and fears and yet and we all have them and yet it's a it's a disservice to look at someone and say oh yeah she's a middle-aged spinster who took care of her mother she's nothing important or there's not a lot going on there of course there's a lot going on there and that's what anita bruckner's books discuss that there's a lot going on in all of us at all times and if we could articulate it and this is what i always talk about um if we could put it into language like anita bruckner can do for her characters you we would be pretty amazed by what what thoughts are running through our heads you know by we think we know what we're seeing or we categorize them quickly like when we say society says like you know um you know they're just a blah 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 and i i get them i know them but you don't you never do so there's that element to it and um well there's lots of things i could talk about so have you how many of anina bruckner's books have wait you've read all of them yeah she's like since since the 80s she's written a book she wrote a book a year she died about 10 years ago yeah i'm looking because it seems like she's been writing for what 30 to 40 years yeah um and that was the other question I was going to ask. Is like I look forward every year to a book by her. <laughs> so as you're reading these books, have you noticed from like the earliest books to the later to the later books, are the themes and the writing style or content ever changing, or is it just you you like the familiarity because no. it's always staying the same? It, well, you know, staying the same in that I know what I'm going to get from her. Okay, which is no, which is sometimes a surprise. I mean, but it's. Mostly not. And that, that surprise is that I'm going to get this language that, like I described, delineates very mm-hmm. uniquely uh, someone's interior life, someone's mm-hmm. mundane quotidian life of, you know, sort of un- so-called unimpressive people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I like. So interesting. That's- the contemplation, like, you know, mm-hmm. a woman gets up, makes tea, reads the newspaper, widowed on a fixed income, what does she do with her day? And then that woman goes through her day. And what Anita Bruckner gives us is lots of thoughts about what is in that woman's head, because there's lots going on in there. And also just the element of like, what will I do with myself today? So that's why it's also about that class issue is an interesting one. I used to think of Anita Bruckner writing about this sort of upper class, middle class uh, milieu in that those are the people who technically have time to contemplate their lives and to contemplate their choices. If you're, you know, hustling to put food on the table 24 seven, it's like, but then there's an interior life there too, of course. And you could delineate that interior life. So there's, I don't mean a disservice to that, but I think she writes, Anita Bruckner writes about the, the, that milieu that intrigues her, I guess those marginalized in a interesting way, people like the, Though, though moneyed are sort of considered just unimportant background women, widowed, ignorable, invisible. Um, yeah, maybe there's snobbery there too. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I'm just going to look for one quote that might delineate. So I didn't tell the story actually about what happens. It's not so much about the plot driven as you hopefully have gotten from what I'm saying. Um, even though there is a plot, uh, I don't know. There's so many good things. She said, <laughs> despair in love 
prolongs its intensity as well as its duration, which is forever. Um, there's a great here. Mrs. Marsh, who's like that common sense, practical person, looking at Anna Durant, who's the woman who goes missing, who took care of her mother and didn't get married on her own. Um, uh, Mrs. Marsh thinking, what profound emotional disposition made these women give up so early, yield to a sickly, selfish parent, or perhaps, to be fair, to a protective and unthinking one, and spend the rest of their lives living so modestly, so incuriously? Did they perceive the world as threatening or, or cruel or simply so obscure that they could not hope to decipher it? Had they been infantilized at some point in their adolescence when, with a different throw of the dice, they might have matured into some semblance of normality? Of course, I cannot speak for this. It, it, so that's hmm. not enough, but it's all you get in kid. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I did it in my book discussion. We had a really good conversation about it. But, um, but Anita Bruckner. And now that she's passed, there are no more new Anita Bruckner books, right? What are you going to do? Reread? Well, I've read this one, so I reread it. Unless they find more manuscripts. Sometimes they do that too, right? Yeah. They'll find unwritten or unpublished works and then release them. I remember when I, I always relate her with my career at the library because I think I discovered her. At the library. When I first mm -hmm. started work at the library, I saw her book on the shelf. Something made, I don't remember why, made me pick it out. And then she was that kind of writer who wrote a book a year. Like mm. her ritual. Just so like much Lee there. Child. Mm -hmm. Huh? Oh, I said just like Lee Child. He always writes a book a year. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually that string must end, as we know. Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> contemplative my darling no i mean i just or like distracted and thinking about lunch or nah no i just like really love the idea that you've had such a long relationship with this author yeah. and the idea of reading like a, a a book a year like i mean i joke about lee child but that's something that my brother does i always buy him the new lee child books and he always reads it but like having that kind of relationship and to know like all of their works, I think is kind of wonderful. Um, yeah, it becomes, and I, with writing like Anita Bruckner's, I always, when I read her, I always start thinking a little bit like her. She's the only writer that makes me feel, maybe because it was, she was so prevalent. And I find myself being able to articulate my thoughts much, I think mm. much better. Oh, and she makes me realize how how reluctant I am to not articulate my thoughts, but to commit. Mm -hmm. Like, in other words, like I always say, you know, we have experience in language to describe it. And I always feel like I can't quite nail something down because I'm afraid it might be wrong. Mm -hmm. it's silly, but like, you know, I'm going through something and, I, and Anita Bruckner would, would say, just like a quote I read, you know, what's happening. And then I, after I read her, my language flows a lot nicer and it feels so good to actually delineate my life. Mm -hmm. But normally I'm, I'm reluctant to land anywhere because I don't want to define myself for some reason. Mm -hmm. myself. Maybe I'll do that you know, on my deathbed or something. I'll finally have the guts to say it when there's no, nothing else to lose. I don't know. For a person who's never read, read Anita Bruckner, what is the one book that you think someone like me should start with? Well, I mean, 
the the glamour book would be Hotel du Lac because she won the Booker Prize for it. Mm, okay. So that's her award winner. And that was that, one of the earlier ones. Was that your favorite? Sweet. Um th- like I said, they the plots I couldn't mm, tell you okay. which plot was which. Like, you know, that there's there's somewhat sim- similar mm-hmm. people that you, when you read one of our books, you're like, okay, I, I remember this. But of course, Got the culture is the same. They're all Londoners, you know, British of a, of a certain class. Like I said, usually living a very prescribed life uh, and then something sort of s- disrupts it to make them think about what what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... She, all the contemplations that Anita Bruckner wants to talk about are, are come forth. Mm-hmm. So you could start anywhere. Mm, okay. That's the award winner. Okay. Even in the book discussion, it's interesting. One of the people in the book discussion, because we had done Hotel du Lac in the book discussion, and mm-hmm. she said she didn't like it. Really? Uh, but she liked fraud a lot. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how can you say that? They're all of a piece. Like, they're Brucknerian in that respect. Mm-hmm. So I was like, huh. There are more characters in Hotel de Lac because it's at a hotel. Yeah. Um, but fraud is deals with much less. Maybe that's the difference. Or I mean, I, f- I feel like I've had experiences like that where you read a book and you can recognize it's like literary merit and how well constructed it is and how well it does certain things. And then other books are kind of imperfect and flawed, but you just really like relate to the character or some other aspect of it. Be- that That's the book that becomes your favorite book over the one that maybe is a little bit colder, but is better done. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I've had that experience. Yeah. I mean, again, it's all a nutty, crazy kind of game because like, you know, like I just said, like uh, putting language to experience is like a a tough thing Mm -hmm. and an important one Mm -hmm. because, you know, that that's what I meant. I think the core of reading Anita Bruckner is that she makes me feel safe in that I trust her delineation of the world she's trying to tell me about. Mm-hmm. There's something safe about that. And I tend to, you know, there's a, she's always a little, a slightly melancholic. Like I said, these, though money, these characters are felt, feel, or are marginalized in a way like, or invisible, I should say more invisible from the, the flow of the, of, um, of society again. Mm-hmm. So just to finish, like Nina Bruckner is one of my favorite quotes, which I, which when I say I have a favorite quote, it's usually, I don't, quite maybe know what it means but i like to contemplate it and that quote is and i think i've brought this up before because i do repeat myself uh is real love is a pilgrimage not a strategy but most strategizers and i've always loved that i'm not sure what it means but i always like it and this does pertain to this book in that Mm -hmm. strategy is seen in her books as the way humans have to be strategize for food, resources, love, attainment, mm-hmm. to get what you want. And her, when I say marginalized or invisible, her characters that she focuses mostly on find themselves unable to strategize. Mm, okay. They're unable to, they just go through the day tr- trying to get from one point to another without mm-hmm. quite understanding why they have vague notions or serious notions of being good people whatever that means, mm-hmm. they don't strategize. They don't say, you know, I'm going to twirl mustache and 
become a CEO mm-hmm. or get that husband or whatever, make that money. They don't. And that's where she, I think her, her division lies is that the strategizers are really the only ones that can get the, the stuff in the world and the others cannot or have much harder time. And I think that's where she throws her attention, which I am appeal because I always, I might be considered a strategizer, but I don't mm-hmm. feel, I feel like I can't strategize to save my life. Mm. I guess I the strategy. Like yeah. I guess like the strategizing implies a sort of efficiency or being able to take like a shorter path to get the thing that you want whereas i guess pilgrimages aren't always like that there's an end goal but the journey can be really winding right right exactly so it's about time too like i don't i've never felt the pressure of time or Mm -hmm. i'm sure i did but like i don't didn't i realize now i didn't like i didn't say i have to be a millionaire by the time i'm 20 kind of thing and then also what i said before about Anita Bruckner delineating so clearly in her language. It's like when you're a strategizer, you have to be able to say, oh, people are this, people are that, or crystals this, crystals that. And I find that tough to do. And I also don't like to do it because I never would want to say crystal is X, Y, Z. Because you're but to strategize, you have to say, eh, she's a pushover. I can get <laughs> from her or she's a roadblock. I have to avoid her. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's really the core of it. See, I knew you would pull it out of me, kid. <laughs> You're a doll. Sometimes we talk about books and I'm just like, You're so smart. You are. Anyway, so that's that. We did it. We Yay. did it. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you can fly three for the rest of your day. In- Wait, next time we are possibly reading an article together? Is that the I'd plan? like to. Just to okay, that's the plan. Talk about something sh- uh, like, well, you know, journalistic. And, and then after the that. Culture, we're going to have guests? Yes, we'll have guests again. For the that's finale exciting. of the year, we're going to have a spectacular guest or guests from the library <laughs> world who will tantalize and delight all of us. Yeah, maybe talk about their favorite books. Or best books of the year. Do the guessing game again with us and talk about their library lives. Yeah. That sounds exciting. So pencil us into your podcast calendar, won't you? (laughs) (laughs) All right, hon. All right. Well, farewell. Farewell. (laughs) Au revoir until later. Thanks for listening to The Librarian is In, a podcast by the New York Public Library. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, or send us an email at podcasts at nypl.org. For more information about the New York Public Library, please visit nypl.org. We are produced by Christine Farrell. Your hosts are Frank Hilarious and Crystal Chen.